Hi, welcome to The Playful Musician. I'm your host, Steve Davidson. Each week, I sit down with musicians from all different paths, from composers to conductors, percussionists to piccolo players, to tease out their strategies, practice habits, tips, tools, tricks, routines, and how they keep all of it playful. The Playful Musician is an intimate look into the lives of each musician, how they got to where they are, what motivates and inspires them, and what playing music means to them. If you'd like to learn more about the guests or just more about being playful, head on over to the website, theplayfulmusician.com. There you can find show notes, links to all references mentioned in the show, and all kinds of resources related to music. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe to The Playful Musician on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're at it, why not leave a review as well? Thanks again, and without further ado, here is this week's episode. Hey, everybody out there. Glad you could make it to the show. This week's guest is Matthew Kremelman, a former Blue Man Group drummer and skateboarder. Matthew has had a very unique journey as a musician, and uh, it was very fun and interesting to sit down and talk with him. He's into health and nutrition, martial arts, teaching, and just being an all-around badass drummer. He and I sat down early in February, before all the pandemic craziness started, during a week in which we had a rare bit of sunshine. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did with Matthew Kremelman. All right, Matthew, welcome to the show. Thank you, Steve. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm a little, actually, I'm a little jittery. I don't know. I bought this new coffee and... Um, I think it like has ex- extra caffeine or something because we just get it. I got it at um, Remix actually. Okay, it's like some it's these little tiny beans. It's like an all natural, not natural processed or I don't know. It's something special about it. I just asked what's good for pour over, and they were like, "Try this." And anyway, I'm like, like "Thanks for the crack." <laughs> Sounds like a good pre-workout drink. Right, right. <laughs> right, but it hit late. Like I had, I had that like you know, four hours ago, and now I'm like, can feel, I can kind of feel that um, caffeine buzz, so. Yeah, we've all been there. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. I just woke up about an hour ago, as you know. Yep. I had a late gig on Friday, and consequently a late gig last night, and uh, I'm feeling good. I'm stoked the sun's out. Yeah, it's nice. Beautiful weather, yet we're inside. <laughs> I know. I was thinking that driving over, too. Like, oh, it's kind of a shame. That right. <laughs> we're doing this in the middle of the day when it's sunny, but I uh, appreciate it. Um, I was thinking about, and we were talking about this earlier, but the last time we played, and then it got me thinking, like, how did you, how did you wind up here? In the Rogue Valley, like you were, did you come here from Vegas? Yes. To, and how did what? How did you find your way? Like why? Why the Rogue Valley? I'm just curious. That's a good question. I had a friend <clears throat> named Mato Gutsu, who's a really great singer and a performer. He was in Vegas for many years, really successful musician, and he had bought some property in Myrtle Creek. He started an intentional community with a lot of his other friends from Vegas. Mm. 
um, servers and business people, people that just wanted to get out of that environment and culture and have a more natural way of living and, mm -hmm. and a sort of holistic approach to a healthy life. And uh, <clears throat> I was in a relationship at the time and Malto and I had played music together off and on for a couple of years. I was playing drums in his band, Kinetic Origins of Rhythm, which was like an electro-tribal performance troupe with oh, cool. fire breeders and contortionists. And I was playing the stand-up rig. It was very sort of blue man style drumming. Mm. But um, I just came out to visit <clears throat> with my girlfriend at the time and fell in love with the physical environment. Mm. Yeah. And you know, the trees, <laughs> green, clean air. Right alkaline environment after being in the desert for 10 years you know yeah and uh so he's like listen if you guys want you could live in this communal property everybody chips in we share <clears throat> a common kitchen and there's like a main house and then everyone has their individual domiciles mm. and my girlfriend was a tattoo artist and a painter so she wanted to focus on her artwork do more paintings and i said i think i could sustain us to be here for a couple months and he and i uh, did a record together, and I recorded drums at his studio on the property of Myrtle Creek. It was called Ohm Gardens. <laughs> cool. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, in theory, it was all really cool, <laughs> but it's really, uh, and everyone had a really good intention, but yeah. it's, you know, it's tricky when people are tribal by nature, sort of, <laughs> you get that many people on this commune, yeah. and um after about six months or so, I think we were there for a year total. I was back and forth, still playing with Blue Man part-time. Mm. And um, we would visit Ashland from time to time and really dog Ashland. And so eventually when we left the property, we came here as a pit stop mm -hmm. on our way to either Portland right. or I was going to focus on getting more work in LA. And um, I started getting busy, you know, and met some great musicians here and was still really, the winners were an adjustment for sure. <laughs> I bet. And I was like, I don't only get depressed, but right. man, it's like, it's, it's feeling dark mm -hmm. out here, <laughs> you know, inside me and outside. Yeah. And um, so once I was able to make that adjustment, you know, it was a little tough at first. Um, out of necessity, I just started working a lot, you know, mm. as many gigs as I could. And, um, my girlfriend didn't really dig the environment and she eventually went to Portland and and we split and I stayed, but I was sort of one foot in, one foot out for years. You mm. know? And I it was like that weird thing. It's like when you let it go and you're not trying as much, I was yeah. like, I think I'm gonna leave I would just get more gigs, you know? Yeah. And but also it started forming some really good friendships and musical sure. relationships. Yeah. yeah. And uh yeah, that's basically it. And then here I am like eight years later. I've been with um <clears throat> Like my lady Tita Soriano, yeah. who's been so loving and supportive and, <laughs> and amazing. Awesome. We've been together four years. And after meeting her, even then I was like, you know, I don't know how long I'm gonna be here for. And and sure. she had other ideas and ventures in mind. We said, let's just, you know, take it as it goes. Mm. And our relationship became more and more solid. And so I definitely felt more rooted and grounded here. And uh, she was born and raised here. And I met a lot of people that. through her. Mm. And so, yeah, now I'm, I finally said, I think it's like reminds you of, uh, you know, Paulo Coelho's book, The Alchemist. You know, oh, yeah, like that's a great book. Searching around and eventually <laughs> it was like, oh, it's all right here. It's all happening here. And um, 
So I've been doing my best to make it work, and it's been challenging at times, but really rewarding too. And one of the main things is the environment. <laughs> the physical, yeah, all yeah, nature and all that. I love it. I was never a nature guy, like growing up in New York City. <laughs> it's like, what do you do when you go out to the woods? Like crickets, <laughs> like is this it? Light a fire and, and sit here, you know? And uh, of course, Vegas, the hustle and bustle, that was really intriguing. Mm. But when I, because I'm really into healthy living, I uh, realized your environment needs to be healthy oh, yeah. too. Such a big part, huh? Yeah, so I love it now. All right. So you weren't outdoorsy or anything in Vegas while you were there? Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. Um, I mean, I did go to Red Rock Canyon occasionally, and uh -huh. I would do some hikes, and I would uh, go out to Tacopa, California, where they have a natural hot springs, mm -hmm. which is it's technically California, but it's only, it only was like 45 minutes from my house. Oh, right. And um, there's things about the desert I really dug, you know? Yeah. And there's a lot of things about Vegas and the culture I really liked, mainly the high level of professionalism sure. in the entertainment <laughs> industry, you know? And right. I sort of got spoiled with that, you know, because I would go to other places, and including when I first came here, I was like, oh, you know. Yeah. Different. A, yeah, it's different. <laughs> there's a lot of a lot of high caliber players here, too. Yeah. And a lot of, there's a large amateur. Yeah. Pop, uh, you know, a lot of amateur musicians, I would say. A large population of amateur musicians out there yeah. doing stuff. <laughs> Yeah, when you're in Vegas, like even if you go to like a lower end casino and there's like a karaoke band or, you know, there's, because um, that's a thing, you know, live yeah. karaoke, uh -huh. um, a cover band, yep. you know, playing 80s covers, still like they're smoking, like <laughs> ripping players. It's like, oh, everybody is good because you wouldn't get a gig out there if you're not right. good. You know? And I got to play with some of the best in the world. My buddy Eve uh, from... Celine Dion's band, you mm. know, I played in the Doors tribute band with him. He was incredible. Wow. Charted everything out. Wow. And, uh, you know, Barry Manilow's band, and I jammed with a guy from Prince's band. Wow. And then, of course, all the players of Blue Man were monsters, you know. I bet. And so that's the level, you know, really. And I think that's how I've made a living out here as a professional, because whether it's something that's challenging for me to play or it's not within my wheelhouse, I'm always thinking, like, um, high standard you know right. as opposed to ah it's just okay they liked it or they won't know the difference or fool them again right i heard that from some local physicians that i just like no man like we're not fooling each other and why fool the audience right like bring your best whatever that may be you know right and um so that was kind of an adjustment and there's a lot of great players there are a know? lot of great and what players. i love about this environment is because it's not so competitive like la or like new york the audiences are so forgiving and so accepting <laughs> so sometimes it's a little bit of a gray area. it's like everyone mm. thinks you're great you know right. oh you guys were amazing you know <laughs> right and I'm, I'm just uh i really love it when i tell all my students because i'm a drum instructor as well sure. it's like it's so much more fun when it sounds good <laughs> right you know <clears throat> Right. So what is your, how does that work in terms of preparation? Like when you, like when you get, at, when you get uh, asked to play in a new band or you just did this Stones concert like a couple of days ago. So yeah. what is that, how does that begin for you? What does the preparation look like for that? The first thing I do is uh, when it's covers, you know, I listen to the originals, of course, and I kind of look at like, 
look at it like an actor. I sort of try and get in the character of the player. So Charlie Watts, you know, mm -hmm. very unique, idiosyncratic style. Nobody can play like Charlie Watts. I can't, you know, <laughs> but at the same time, I don't want to approach it like too slick or try and be too fancy. Right. And I'm also not going to try and dumb down the playing because that's sort of an insult to like his brilliance, you right. know? And the deeper you go down the rabbit hole, you realize now growing up, I didn't uh, aspire to play like Charlie Watts. <laughs> it was more like, you know, Neil Peart and people I was into at the time, sure. or, you know, Tony Williams. And But um, I try and uh, get into the mood of the music, the character of the player, and then really pick up on any specific fills or beats that are iconic and really important to the song. So mm -hmm. I try and be as authentic and as original as I possibly can. Listen to it a bunch. I usually make a playlist. I love right. getting a set list from a band ahead of time if I can. Right. Because I'll make a playlist in that order. Sure. And that becomes my <laughs> mantra for the week or however long I have to prepare for it. Right. And then I write charts and, you know, my version of a chart. Sure. Which is like, <laughs> Notes you know, and whatnot. Yeah, I'm not super musically literate. Sure. I basically have my own hieroglyph system, which is kind of something I got from uh, Nate Morton, who's the drummer for American Idol, or oh, wow. maybe it's The Voice. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I watched a, a lesson of his online, and, um, <clears throat> you know, V for verse, C for chorus, times two, I decide what a phrase is, eight bars or 16 bars, I'll write that at the top, that's mm. sort of my lexicon. Right. And so, you know, V times two, C times one, <laughs> B for the bridge times, and then I have symbols that represent spaces, and then I'll write something out, like, to remind me to feel the song, like Stevie Ray shuffle, you know? Uh -huh, right. Or, uh, you know, <clears throat> Beatles, you know, just, mm -hmm. I know that's pretty vague, but, sure. uh, like, if it's, you know, for me, right. I think, like, um, I have to have mental cues. Yeah. That remind me of stuff. Frames of reference. Exactly. For all that, yeah. So writing the chart out while listening to the song, mm -hmm. and then playing to the originals while looking at my chart to make sure it's actually helping me. Because mm -hmm. sometimes I'd be on a gig and I would be thrown by something I had written or it wasn't clear enough. Right. I, I, I added too much detail. So I distill that chart into a simpler form. Mm. And then um, I practice it that way, you know? Do you, when you're playing along, do you use headphones or do you? I do. Yeah. Or do you have like one ear? Can you hear what you're doing? I'm sure you can, but I find as a saxophone player, it doesn't always work for me to have headphones on because my whole head is vibrating. <laughs> yes, yeah, so it's totally different for you. Yeah. Yeah, having a wind, wind instrument. Right. Yeah, drums are loud. So <laughs> basically, don't have that issue. Yeah, I basically try and block out as much of the ambient sound as possible so I can have a low level of music coming into my head mm. and um, balance it out. And I have a kit that has silent stroke heads on it. They're sort of like the mesh heads you see in electronic kits yeah. and these um, modified cymbals and... Uh, so I use that a lot, so I don't have to crank it up too loud. Mm -hmm. And I started doing that out of necessity, because I used to just listen and play along and, and do it by memory, you know? Right. I started getting so much work, thankfully, that I had to develop a better system. And sometimes I'll include lyrics mm -hmm. to remind me of the fills happening between certain phrases. Cues. Yes. There are cues, yeah. And... Oh. Um, it's evolved over time. So now I have a pretty good chart system that works for me. Right. And I can listen to a song 
one time, make the try while I'm listening to it, without pausing it as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And because sometimes I don't have a lot of time, you sure. know, they call it the last minute for something. And, and then uh, I'll just do the gig. Wow. I'll listen to the song a bunch. I try to always play through it if I can. But uh, it depends what it is. Like with the Zeppelin stuff, I've played through that a lot. And I know them. I don't need charts for any of that stuff. I know them by heart, but I'm constantly trying to be more authentic and capturing the feel. You can't be John Bonham. You can't right. emulate someone else, you know? And uh, right. But I try and really get it note for note and lick for lick. And if there's certain things where maybe it's not that important because <clears throat> that's what he played on the day in the studio or whatever, right. and they live, they do it differently. I really go for feel more than anything. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, simply put, with the Charlie Watts thing, I basically, number one, I try and make sure to play the snare without the hi-hat because he did that a lot. And I try and <clears throat> honor the kind of fills he does. Sure. So I think of that drummer's vocabulary and try and pick from that. Right. And then I still make it myself because you still have to own it and do your yeah. own thing. Yeah. And that took me a long time to get that. You know? I bet that's a tricky balance of like, okay, I'm learning this other style, this other person, and now I get to throw, I get to get my own voice in there, and have, yeah. and hopefully have fun. That's with right. It. We're playing. <laughs> We're right? playing, We're playing right? music. Right. I mean, that's something playing I learned around. over time. Perhaps you can relate to. But yeah, it's yeah. Just like Benny Greb said, it. he's a fantastic drummer, and he said, you know, I take what I do seriously, but I don't take myself too seriously. Right. And I always thought to be like a real cat, you know, like to be a real pro, like you take it, take it real seriously. And I do. Right. And I always did. But I, I find I play better if I don't take myself too seriously. Yeah. It's kind of like, yeah, we want this to be like, I have a really high standard mm-hmm. for myself and, and hopefully for the projects I'm involved yeah. in. But it's just music at the end of the day. Jay, <laughs> Jason Sutter said it. he's a phenomenal drummer. He plays for, you know, Marilyn Manson, Foreigner, Chris Cornell. A-level, top L.A. cat. He was at my Bloomin' audition in New York years ago. I remember hearing him warming up in the practice room, and I was like, whoever that dude is, is a monster, you know? Right. This guy is amazing. Right. And ironically, he ended up not getting the gig or taking the gig, so, I'm not yeah, sure yeah. which you know which way Boy, it went, but I ran into him at NAMM a few years ago, and he remembered me, and we were talking. He's like, oh, you took the gig. How was it? So I told him about my 10-year Bloomin' career. But uh, so I watch his clinics online. He's a phenomenal drummer. Mm. He can play brushes like an expert, authentically. <laughs> and he can play full-on hard rock, double bass, authentically. Wow. He's real deal. He's pro. He's doing his clinic. <laughs> He's blowing people's minds with his chops. And, but he talks about like it's always feel. Because mm. he asks people, and I do the same thing. You know, how'd you, how'd you, what do you think of my playing? How'd you like it? Did it right. feel okay to you? Most, usually for me, it's in the form of like on the gig, how's it feel? Does it feel okay? Or in rehearsal, right. does that feel good to you? You know, yeah. as opposed to like, what do you think of me? It's more <laughs> about, I would like some feedback about how I can serve you and the music better. Right. And uh, he said, you know, with the whole pursuing music as a professional career, with that whole rabbit hole, he's like, some people get so heavy on it. <laughs> and he's like, at the end of the day, it's just music, man. Right. You know, yeah. and that kind of helped me too. Just being inspired by a cat who's who's rolling at that level <laughs> and still going. It's just have, music. Yeah, <laughs> let's try and have some fun with right. it. You know, it's not like heart surgery or something where someone's no life is on the line. Yeah. Right, if you play the wrong lick. But I I appreciate that about you, and that was I think 
one of the first things I noticed playing with you was how uh, ultra prepared you come to rehearsals and then just how much fun you have, like how much joy there is playing with you. Like I, I really, the times we've played together have been, uh, I felt really a lot of joy in hearing you play and the feel, your groove, what I would call the groove, um, you know, it just relaxes me and, and I'm like, so you have that, you have both ends. You've got like, you're super prepared, you come, you're like ready to go, and then you bring in this play and joy at the same time. And I I would guess that all the preparation allows you to do that to so that you're relaxed. So you come in and you're like, you know, I know what I'm doing, so I don't have to really stress about right. <laughs> the preparation. I mean, I'm sure that there are times when it's short preparation, but, you know, you, uh, for me, it's like I do the best I can, and then I try to just forget about it, like go into the gig and yeah. be like, okay, well, I've I've done everything I could up until this moment. That's right. To be ready, now, you know, I'm just going to give it my all, so... Yeah, well, thank you, and I, I appreciate that, and that's why I do it, you know, right. because it's hard to relax and just be in the flow when you're stressing or you're not prepared, and I've definitely been there. <laughs> I learned over time. Yeah. It's like, oh, I know what it's like to be like, oh, man, what's coming up next? And and, uh, and then it affects your playing, it affects your feel, you're not present, you're worried about the next thing, or you're stuck on a mistake that just happened. Right. That was a real lesson for me at Blue Man. It's just like, look, this isn't a martial art kata, you know, because I've studied martial arts also, but like this is, let it go, man. Let go. How quickly you let go of the mistake becomes a skill. It's not about <laughs> just trying to make fewer mistakes. And then the interesting metaphysical thing that happens, then you make fewer mistakes. Like, right. If you're worried about dropping a stick, it happens more and more. You know? Right, because you're thinking about it. But I really identify with something you said because there's a sports analogy to the preparation thing. I follow mixed martial arts a lot, and it's like high consequences to not performing well in that situation, <laughs> you know? Right. And uh, so you hear these fighters talk about like how can you do the how can you walk into a fight and not feel stressed? They're like you're, you're always stressed. I said, but if I do all the work and I know I did everything I can, I left no rock unturned to do it. All the preparation I think necessary is necessary to perform well. Then I let it go because now it's like, hey, well, it's just whatever is going to happen today. I'm going to do my best. Right. And so I started applying that to <clears throat> being on stage. Mm. So I thought, how do I? Because I definitely uh, get nervous sometimes, and yeah. I've experienced that. It just means that you care. Right. That's the other thing I realized <laughs> is I learned. I you know I think we often, um, or at least I have. <laughs> You put other people that you respect and admire like at a level above you or, <laughs> yes. or there's something different than you are. Right. And the more I get to rub elbows with high level pros, it's like, oh, it's like no, everyone's They're human. The same. Everyone's <laughs> human. Uh, oh, that person gets nervous too, you know? Right. So I just realized that uh, the more preparation I did, the more calm I felt. And then I would let it go. Right. If I did everything I can, well, I'm going to do the, I'll do the best I can. As opposed to, man, if I had maybe practiced more, I studied that more, I wouldn't have made that mistake. And then I would feel, I'd be hard on myself. You right. Know? Yeah. So that's why I started becoming hyper prepared because then uh, I could play as well as I know I really could. And that's the only thing that would bug me is if I left a gig and I thought, I know I could have played it better. <laughs> I'm not trying to. to right. 
gain something or manufacture something that's not authentic, you know, or just get lucky and have a mad, you have those magical things where right. some lick you've been working on forever, like finally Falls came together, out, you right. know, yeah. or you had a solo where you're like, oh my God, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> and that was brilliant, you know? Yeah. It's more about like, no, I'm starting to know how it sounds when I'm playing, while I'm playing, because I trust the preparation I did. And, um, yeah. That leads me to another thing, which is recording yourself when you play. Do you do that when you practice? Or do you do it just on the gig or both, probably? I do it all the time. <laughs> you know, even if it's just the iPhone on my stick bag. Sure. And on the drive home, it's like, <laughs> you know, I still get a gauge of the feel and the tempo. Right. And uh, Dave Elich talks about this. He's a great drum instructor. I took a lesson from him. He plays for Miley Cyrus and the Mars Volta. And he's wow. like, yeah, I tell him. Dave Elich is very, he's highly capable, very competent, and also he's not afraid to have an opinion, which I think is kind of cool. <laughs> and he's just like, yeah, I tell my students all the time, record yourself, yeah. and it sucks. He's like, it's it brutal sometimes, brutal. you know? And so that became the other, so that became a confirmation. It's like, do the preparation, then on the gig, let it go and just play. Have some fun, because emotionally, I really enjoy connecting with the music. Yeah. And if your attention is not on yourself so much, right? You end up sounding better in turn, right. I find. Because you're listening and being part of it, attuned in to what's going on. That's right. Because especially if you're a drummer, like it ain't about you, you know? And I really enjoy, that's why I love playing with great players. I'm right. just listening to you. I'm just, <laughs> wow, you're solo. I'm just digging your solo <laughs> while I'm backing you up. I'm feeling the whole thing. Mm. And then afterwards, check the recording on the way home, you know? Mm. Or I record my practice whenever I'm upstairs doing that. Right. I would do that all the time, sort of obsessively, you know? <laughs> I would kind of really listen to it and um, it's, I learn something from it every time. Yeah. And when we get the confirmation, yes, it sounded. Now, that doesn't account for the real live experience. Sure. You know, right. What the audience is experiencing, but I would, uh, it would confirm or deny what sure. I experienced at the moment. Yeah. And then, you know, it became a really effective tool for me, and I recommend that to all my students, and I yeah. still record myself a yeah. lot. I do, too. I can't listen to it that quickly, <laughs> though. Like <laughs> I could listen to it on the way home. Like I, I have to have space. I tell my students that, uh, and this is what I try to do most weeks, is that uh, I practice about six days a week, and then um, I'll record myself on the last day, the last day of the week. So Saturdays, I'll usually record my practice session or if I have a gig I'll record the gig too but and then I'll I won't listen to it till late Sunday usually or Monday when I when I'm kind of looking at my practice for the week cuz I want to hear like if there's a clue in there about what I should be focusing on or maybe there's something I could work on this week like oh my pitch was really off or you know I don't know it could be anything it could be a feel thing it could be whatever but I find if I, for me, if I listen to it right away, it's like I'm, I'm so critical that I won't actually, I can't have that, um, I can't be objective about it. I'm just like, oh, <laughs> not always, but a lot of the time it's like I hear every little <laughs> mistake. I know. Or thing that, you know, didn't go well or like, wow, I thought that went much better. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that the interesting thing to Than that. Yeah, I had like at Blue Man, they would always record the shows, and I would listen to the C. It was a CD we get, and I'd listen to it on the car ride home. And there were nights I thought, man, I felt really on. I felt good, and here I go, whoa, 
I'm squashing the spaces and rushing fills and oh, I was really <laughs> digging in. It doesn't, the drums don't sound good and vice versa. You thought, man, it was loose and I felt uncertain about things. You listen back, wow, some of that sounded good, you know? So my idea of what's good, right. I sort of recalibrated that over time. Mm. And what I go for and I share with all my students is, you know, use the, use recording to inform you're playing in a way so that your experience of it in the moment matches how it really sounds. Right. That and makes sense. And then you can hear yourself in real time, especially because drumming is so physical. I mean, every instrument, I'm sure it's it's um, applicable, but you might feel you're relaxed on a particular tune. You listen back, oh, actually a little on top. So note to self, that feeling I had does not mean relaxed. It still means on top. So I need to like dial down my internal clock a little more, mm. get even more relaxed. And you might be on stage thinking, this feels lazy and drippy. And like, is this okay? Like, <laughs> is this falling apart? I think, trust it. Listen back. To the, wow. Actually, the pocket's there and it feels good. So now right. I know that feeling isn't too slow. That's what it sounds like when it's right. Right. That's and vice so versa. Useful. Like I've done, uh, you know, other tracks in the studio where I was like really felt locked with the click and I'm, isn't as in the pocket as I can be and listen back like, oh, it sounds too grounded. Like I did this one track, it was kind of like an Elvis Costello style, really on top sort of rock thing. Mm -hmm. And I listened back and it sounded too uh, slick. It sound, not that I'm so slick and fancy all <laughs> right. the time, but it didn't have enough hair on it, as my buddy Jeff Pivar would say. Oh, right. I was like, let me do this again and just purposely like get on top of the click and rush a tiny bit. Listening back, it finally sounded right. Huh. It's like, oh, now it sounds like it has the right character for the song. Right. So once again, my idea of what's good, well, I'm locked into the click as much as I can be. I feel relaxed. I'm playing the right tempo, which is the faster tempo. No, it didn't feel right. Right. So then again, awesome. what's good? Well, good can sometimes be, yeah, the click's there. You want to be with it, but don't worry about it. Right. Get on, go, get on top a little bit. Right. Right. That's awesome. like when auditioning for blue man group can you talk about that and how that how that came about and yeah. how did you how you prepared for that if you did yeah <laughs> not much i guess it was like uh, <clears throat> playing from the time playing gigs from the time i was 13 you know till when i got the audition when i was 29 wow that was the preparation mostly <laughs> but honestly i wasn't playing a ton at the time I was doing, uh, I'd managed a health food store for a while and I was, I was still involved in music and playing in bands, but it was uh, a meditation teacher who mm. became a good friend of mine. His name was Matthew also, Matthew <laughs> Hansen. This was in New York? Yeah, New York City. <clears throat> One of my martial arts buddies was taking this meditation class. She was like, you should check this out. I was like, okay. And it was really helpful for me at the time. Mm. And um, 
Matthew Hansen's wife, Carrie Hansen, who was a creative director of Blue Man, was in the class. And one day she said, you know, do you act? I was like, not really. <laughs> I said, uh, do you play? She said, do you play drums? Yes, I do. Would you like to audition to be a Blue Man? I said, sure. <clears throat> I had seen the Blue Man group show a few years prior. Right. Because my mother is, uh, is an art history professor and she would teach modern art history and part of the curriculum was taking her students to the Blue Man show. Oh, wow. There's a lot of historical art references and sure. they were really into the Dada movement and, you know, mm. play as a form of art. <laughs> And Jackson Pollock, the blue man, you know, spit paint right. on the canvas. That's a, a wink to Pollock. So I thought, yeah, cool. So I went in, I did the acting audition, which is uncomfortable. <laughs> and, and I don't think I did very well at And then they, I did the drumming part. And they said, okay, obviously you can play drums and we'll keep your, you know, keep you in mind. We're going to mm -hmm. open a show. I found out later on, they'd already been planning to open this show in Vegas. Uh. But I think it was six months after they called me and said, hey, would you like to come in and audition to be a drummer? We're going to open a show in Las Vegas. We're going to have a bunch of drummers. I said, sure, you know. And um, I was driving a truck at the time. <laughs> I was driving a truck for a corporate catering company, I think. I parked uh -huh. the truck in front of the building, went in and did my audition. Wow. And thankfully got a call back. And uh, it was a long process. I think I did four different callbacks. Wow. Because they were auditioning people all over the world, I think. Definitely mm. in the country going to... Pasic and different, mm -hmm. you know, drumming festivals to find drummers. And uh, so they kept whittling it down to a smaller group. And each time I got called back, I was glad I was still in the group. And I noticed <laughs> it was fewer and fewer people. Were the auditions with other drummers or was it mostly solo? Yeah, it was with other players. <clears throat> You'd go in and the creative directors would be there and the musicians that already had the gig would be there and they would play a song through, a piece from the show with a drummer, <clears throat> they say, okay, now you play it, the band, <laughs> you know? So a lot of it was, you know, how quickly you can learn things and retain things. There were mm -hmm. no charts on that gig at all. It was pretty much, I'm gonna show you a groove. Can you play this? Let me show you a pattern. And uh, thankfully I was able to do enough of it, you know, well enough. I don't think I aced the, dish, the audition sure. by any stretch. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is who you are. You know, they were yeah. interested to know what my influences were and can we live with this person? And uh, <laughs> I was real nervous. But when I just stopped caring so much and thought, well, I'll just do the best I can. Right. I think it was the last day where Ian Pei, who was the original, the one and only original Blue Man drummer. He was the first drummer for the original show at Astor Place Theater in New York City. And uh, he said, okay, listen, you know, <laughs> I want you to play drums like you're 16 years old. Like, just go for it, okay? They wanted a very tribal sort of Keith Moon kind of aesthetic. And one thing they do is they pair you up with another drummer. Mm. So I was paired up with Todd Wadesick, who's still the musical director for the, the uh, Vegas show, who's a monster player. One of the best drummers I've ever seen, even though he's an acquaintance of mine. Right. It's still like, I remember 10 years into the show, or I guess I was there full-time nine years and then part-time for like a year and a half. Uh -huh. But let's say, you know, year seven or year eight, it would still be like, Man, like, how is it you're you're getting better still? We're all getting better, but I mean, just scary good. Right. Like, wow, okay, you got it on so many levels. It's deep. You mm. know, it can be intimidating, but it can also be really inspiring. That's, yeah, I bet. And at the end of the day, you learn to, you have your own voice and do your own thing with it. So I was, uh, there were two kits in the room, mm -hmm. and they paired me up with Todd Waitzig. 
let's play this together. He starts banging out this tribal kind of groove. They like a lot of tom work. It's a lot of 16s. Yeah. A lot of it, you know, chops wise is very pedestrian, you know? Yeah. It's not super slick. It's not, nothing's, yeah. you know, brainiac chops. <laughs> But it's a lot of it's about feel. You need some rudimental abilities. Mm. And uh, there's a really weird thing with the drum kit style, which you're playing your feet. You're pumping eighth notes on your feet consistently. <laughs> and then you play this this pattern called the mandel rod on top of that, oh. which is, you know, like a kind of a basic modified rudiment. But I was playing next to tell. I was like, oh, wow, this guy's really good, you know? <laughs> and so I started kind of joining them. And it wasn't like we're trading solos so much. Sure. We're playing this tribal groove together. Right. And I just thought, I got nothing left to lose. And I remembered what Ian Pei said. And so I just went for it, just banging <laughs> the toms and going, because I was trying to be really good, you know, right. leading up to that. And and uh, I was lucky enough that at the end of that, Ian Pei was just like, okay, that's it. We knew you had it in you. We just hadn't seen it. So again, that taught me to recalibrate what I think good is. Yeah, I was trying to be really good at the audition. It's just like when I have students, I can tell right away what they can play and what they can't. Mm -hmm. It's like your talent will still come through even if it's your worst day <laughs> when experienced professionals are watching you play. Right. And you're not going to get lucky and and show that you can you're competent in some way that you're not truly you're not, comfortable. Right. Right. <laughs> but if you let go, there might be some magic there where people can really see, oh, okay, we see that you can do this, you know? Right. And um, wow, so thankfully I got amazing. the gig. And so after that, you know, I think I didn't hear anything for months. And <laughs> I thought, well, I did the best I could. I, I hope it worked. Who knows? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> and when I got the phone call, man, it was really, really excited. Wow. They were all the creative directors were on speakerphone. <laughs> They're like, so you got the gig, you know? You're moving to Vegas. Yeah. We're gonna, and it, they were super pro. It's like, you're going to be living in this apartment in New York City, training for three months. Wow. We're going to you know, pay for you to relocate. And uh, it all happened really fast. Wow. And then I was full-time professional drummer. And um, that's been my goal to maintain that ever since. <laughs> Did you, was that always like, was that always in your mind when you were, since you were 13 or whenever you started, was that like, yeah, that's what I, did you always know that's what you wanted to do or you, you were just like, I like this and see where it goes or. Yeah, no, I, uh, I always loved playing drums. I always saw myself on stage mm -hmm. and I, my vision of making it would be in a really successful rock band, you know? <laughs> That was kind of what I was thinking of. But I was yeah. also interested in other things. I was a sponsored skateboarder. Skateboarding was my life. Like Holy than, cow, I didn't know that. More than anything. And um, I was always into athletics. And right. then I went to art school. as was a fine arts major, painting and drawing. So I think my uncertainty about what I, what I wanted to do when I grow up is kind of why things manifested the way they did. Mm. And um, it was really through happenstance. I was going to art school at SVA in New York, and I was skating a lot then still, and I was playing in a band, uh, this punk funk metal band, and we got signed to Roadrunner Records and mm. had a hit in Europe, so I left school to, to pursue doing that, and then I thought, this will be the thing, you know? <laughs> right. And then I realized how challenging it is to make it in the business, yeah. and the high attrition rate of musicians, you know? Right. And so from Those that band, I was in another band and it was always like trying to find the right band and yeah. working odd jobs while I was doing that. Then I really started working as a, you know, hired gun, so to speak. Um, that's when I started approaching it more professionally. Mm. You know, I was like, I want to make a living playing. So expand your palette. 
And I did a few tours and I was given lessons here and there, but still kind of unsure. Yeah. And the Blue Moon thing was kind of a fluke. It was based on, right. you know, my meditation teacher. <laughs> right, you being was, in the right place at the right time. Yeah, so. and it was based on auditioning for something that I didn't get. You want to be a blue man? Sure. Okay. You're not that, but maybe we might need a drummer down the line. Right. And then later on, I auditioned again to be a blue man. I had taken some acting classes with the Second City Group, this comedic improv Mm -hmm. group in Vegas, and you know a lot of SNL players. Yeah, yeah. Come from Second City, yeah. So that was one of the other cool things about Vegas. Instead of just being a musician or a drummer, I was open. uh, You know, my my mind was blown, and I had a whole a lot of exposure to a whole new world of performance. Yeah. So I did take some acting classes and I re-auditioned to be a blue man just because I thought it would be fun and where else can I go in the company and got really far through that process and they said, you know, we're not closing the door but you're still not ready. Right. And then I came back and realized how much I enjoyed being a drummer. <laughs> but the acting, right. you know, I have a lot of respect for actors because it seems like the one job everybody thinks they can do, you right. know? And when it's flowing, it seems easy but when it's not, really... It can be really uncomfortable, you know? right? Right. And so that was a great, uh, great lesson, a great experience. That that reminds me of something you said earlier about the pros and how we, you know, the people we look up to, we see the finished product and we we make these assumptions like, oh, that guy doesn't have stress or he doesn't he doesn't worry or it just comes so freely and naturally to him. You know, and, and I, I know for me, I make the same, I make those assumptions all the time about like actors and comedians because I have like no aware, zero awareness until the last several years of like, oh yeah, actually there's a ton of preparation (laughs) that they do to make it come off like it's just second nature. Yeah, it's like like the ten year overnight success. Right. You know, like when I got the Blue Man gig, so many other players in Vegas were like, "Oh man, you guys are so lucky you got that gig." <laughs> like, yes, I am lucky, and I feel grateful. And it's taken a, a lifetime just to be right. good enough to get that one gig. Right. And after ten years of just slugging it out in all the clubs in New York City, and right, you know, uh, when when you're competent in something, it looks easy. You know. <laughs> what was it like in Vegas in terms of? I was curious. You you said that you were had you were able to delve into these other things. So you had a flexible enough schedule to to like play other gigs or pursue other creative interests outside of the Blue Man Group. Yeah, that's one of the things that was really cool about it. Is it's interesting because there's no contracts, at least when I was working mm-hmm. for Blue Man. And the only thing that ensures you keep the gig is that you just keep doing well. So you could leave at any time if you give notice, but they could also let you go at any time. And um, we had a rotating cast. It was like a sports team. We because it was no dark day. The show was always happening. Right. Every once in a while, they would close it. You know, every couple months to do some repair in the theater. Right. But um, basically, five to eight shows a week. You know, for each performer, and they're rotating us in and out, so they have fresh bodies to do it. Right. And your schedule was different every week, which was kind of challenging, but cool in the sense you might do all your shows in three days. You know, you right. two shows a night, so you're doing six shows. It's only three days the rest of the time. You've got space to do other gigs, you know? And so that's when I took the acting classes, yeah. just for fun, to open up a little bit. And I really enjoyed that a lot. <laughs> that was really cool. I and, bet. That yeah, and it cool. was... Uh, I have a lot of respect for comedic actors because when it's not funny, it's it's just not funny. Right. 
you know what it is. You're like, oh, how did that happen? You know, so you know Jason Sudeikis, who's a really well known uh -huh. actor now. And yeah, I was giving him drum lessons because his girlfriend at the time was my Second City acting teacher, <laughs> and he wanted to be a blue man. And this is another like lesson. It was a lesson for me about tenacity and finding your your niche, finding your lane, mm. because he didn't get the blue man gig. He was trying to be a good enough drummer to get you know to yeah. play the blue man character, and uh, but obviously he found his wheelhouse. He was a writer for SNL and became you know became right. very successful. And yeah, I was in his apartment like <laughs> teaching him my basic rudiments. That's awesome. So did the was it was the same show for twelve years, or did that change? The show changed a little bit, but once each show is built and installed, it's like a work of art. It's, it stays that it's way. Like an installation. Installation, sort of. yeah. And there's a template. I mean, the show is pretty much the same worldwide. It's different in terms of its presentation, but the story and the characters and the key elements are the same worldwide. Wow. How was like I've I've only ever done. <laughs> Like local theater where it's like a three-month run of the same show. Right. And I I remember being nervous. Having Well, the first time I did it, I was like, am I going to get bored? Because it's the same show every night. And surprisingly, for me at least, I didn't. Like it was because it was different. It was different every night. Like even though it was the same, like the actors would do something different or the song or the audience. And there was always something different. But... um how was it doing that for 12 years? Like, did it ever feel like a J-O-B? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, it did sometimes. But we were lucky because we had a rotating cast and there's four drum positions. Mm. So you would be able to play as many as you could. You know, you'd start out learning one position if you could oh, do okay. two and then three. And some of us would also play the lead spot, which was a lot of fun. So it's a different cast every night comprised of the same overall pool of people mm -hmm. and you're in a different position and your schedule is different every week. Right. And the, you know, there's elements of the show that were improvised mm. each night. So that was kind of exciting. And, cool. um, but yeah, it did. <laughs> it can become a grind, you know? And when you see the audience, it's always a reminder because we did a meet and greet every night. It's a reminder of like, man, these people are seeing it for the first, first time. First time, right. And it means a lot to them, you know, hopefully. And uh, especially with the kids, you know, like, yeah. keep it fresh because it's a trip when someone's like, wow, you're influencing them to, to play or inspiring them to pick up an instrument, you know, mm -hmm. but um, definitely was a job. <laughs> Did they have ongoing rehearsals or was it just like once the show was running, it was kind of on autopilot in terms of that? If they would implement a new, <clears throat> some new music in the show, which is very rare, they would occasionally change something. Um, we would do rehearsals to work on that. There would be constant sort of brush up workshops to refine the stuff we were already doing and to get better. And the weird thing about Blue Man, it's sort of like you never really know that you got the gig. It's never <laughs> like, okay, you got the gig, you're doing well, you can relax. <laughs> they always keep you on your toes, which is kind of cool because you get these performance-based evaluations every year. Oh, wow. And it's based on, you know, um, they solicit anonymous feedback from everyone in the company. So they'll say, here's what people are saying about you, you know, <laughs> here's what we think about your playing. And they're fair. They always give you a chance to say, tell us how you think you're doing. And mm. uh, 
I guess I was lucky because every time I would be very honest about my strengths and weaknesses, and they'd sure. say, "We agree with you." <laughs> you know, which can take you know, right. you know, We're one on or the two same ways. Page. I'm like, okay, they're like, good awareness. Yeah, I'm like, okay, so it is true that, you know, I have these things I need to work on, but it's also true that the things I'm doing well, at least that translates. Um, mm. But yeah, I retrained one time. I was playing the lead spot. I was playing the main rhythm called the the Mandelbrot. And uh, they were like, you're really solid. I'm like, oh, thanks. My whole life I got compliments about that. This is another back to like recalibrating what's good. Right. I was always told, man, you're so solid. You know, you're so, I sort of naturally play that way. That's how my mind works. I don't hear thing in a dis, hear things in a disorganized way. You know? Sure. And um, they said, you're too solid. <laughs> You know, it's like, oh, how right. could that be? Yeah, can, can you let it go a little bit? And I was like, well, yeah, I might fall on my face sometimes. I said, we give you permission to do that, and I did. <laughs> there were many times I was like, let me just instead of playing the same road fill that I know I can pull off or or stick within a limited vocabulary, let me really go for something that's still within the blue man aesthetic. Because uh, that's another thing I learned is play appropriately for the gig. Right. In fact, during training, I did like some. I did a bottom lick. And the IMP, the guy who I, you know, we had a good relationship. He think he's one of the reasons I actually got hired. <laughs> Big rehearsal, lots of people there in this large rehearsal. We stopped the whole rehearsal and he goes, hey man, you know, in front of everybody. He's like, if you do that, like in a show, that's going to be a real bummer. Do not do that. And I was like, I was just excited and happy and like <laughs> right. kind of a wing. I wouldn't do it in a show. Sure. Kind of a wing to the other drummers like, huh? And I wasn't trying to be, Cute you know, anything, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And I was, okay, note to self, don't do that. You know, like uh, playing outside of the aesthetic, yeah. it's not good musicianship, you know? Right. So <clears throat> I would take chances in the show and uh, yeah, clammed a bunch of stuff. <laughs> and they're like, okay, yeah, it's a little rough, but you're getting there. But, but it eventually yeah. helped me uh, become more free. So sure. then when I went really far in that direction, as far as I could, mm -hmm. they were like, okay, Rain it back, back in a little bit, you know? <laughs> and then I realized, hmm, okay, I, I got your number. They never want you to be totally comfortable because it has to feel fresh. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that makes and sense. Then one director said something that really made an impression upon me back to the like, we're, we're playing. Don't make it so heavy, man. <laughs> Even if you're playing heavy music, and I do, like I play with uh, 80 Bell and Venus Exalted, which is one of my favorite, best projects I'm a part of, you mm. know? Her music is deeply profound to me you know yeah. and i think to a lot of the audience based on what i see and it's deep you know this isn't like we're jamming we're <laughs> having fun you know even in that there's there's a certain amount of levity sure. that we we bring to rehearsals and to the performance because in the moment yeah again but back to like the acting analogy yeah, yeah you're honoring the character it's like i'm not going to do some super, superfluous goofy thing in the middle right. of the show but you don't have to make it so heavy the art is already what it is. Right. And so uh, the Blue Man Show, there's a lot of fun in that show. And there was one director. We were all very conscious of the directors when they were watching the show. <laughs> Sometimes we, we'd make more mistakes, which is always funny. But, um, man, we thought we nailed it. I thought we did too. You know, we're up there. We're just laying these parts mm. out and we're in it. We're so, you know, we're coalescing. It feels right. connected. But we're kind of serious about like, yeah, this has got to be some... Some bad shit right, right here. We're gonna lay this down We're for the directors. And the director's like, "Hey, man, there's a happiness factor here, right? You want the audience to feel happy. Like, don't forget that in your seriousness about like being really good." When right. You're... And that was another lesson too. That some of our best shows 
where, you know, like the, the metaphysical approach is like when there's this, there's this uh, sense of entrainment, and I know you've experienced this and I've experienced it with you. Yeah. You know, that joy, that sense of yeah. joy, you know? Even yeah. if you're playing metal, it's like you're, you might have joy <laughs> about like, yes, I get to do this. And um, that's something that really took me a long time to get and has helped me a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that was the biggest lesson I learned at Blue Man Group, you know, yeah. high level of competence, be highly prepared. Right. There's a high standard, <laughs> you know, because they were, it's like right. excellence was expected. Yeah. And let go and enjoy the process and be free to make mistakes because it's art. We're making art, <laughs> you know. How do you teach that? I'm really curious about this. Like with my students, there's a, I have mostly middle school and high school students and they want to get it right. You know, they're like, they want to do the right thing, which to me is like, (laughs) what does that even mean? You know, they want to please you. Uh, There's this whole thing of like pleasing the teacher. And, and I try to talk to them a lot about like play and stuff. But I'm curious for you when you're teaching your students, like, how do you, how do you get that in there? What you just talked about, you know, in their, in their week or in their month or, that's a good question. I'm or still, do you? yeah, I'm still uh, figuring out how to quantify that. Yeah, you know, I do it with my students through example, mm-hmm. and also just um, how I gauge the lesson. You know, if I see they're too hard on themselves, which I can relate to, because I've definitely <laughs> been that way. If I see that they're too technical and too exacting, they may not be exacting enough. You know, mm-hmm. then that's, to me, that's easier. It's like, okay, you need to be more precise and more specific and here's how to do that. Right. But um, I try and help them, you know, understand that you're just communicating through the instrument and you're playing music ultimately, <laughs> you know? Right. It's not, especially with drumming, it's so physical. Like people yeah. really get into the athletic <clears throat> execution of it, you know? So that's great, but how does that work when you apply it in a musical context, you know? Or even if you're playing by yourself or soloing. Mm. I just saw a solo. Herlin Riley is a fantastic jazz drummer, a New Orleans cat, and I was watching one of his solos yesterday with my buddy Paul Turnipseed, who's mm-hmm. a great musician. And, and uh, man, his solo was just so expressive and inspiring, <laughs> and he's not just blowing chops the whole time, uh-huh. you know? He's licking his finger and pushing on the tom when he hits it, right. you know, <laughs> making a, a unique sound and... <clears throat> So I try and just, I basically teach from a place of sharing my own experience mm-hmm. while using a template for developing proficiency mm. and um, getting it right is, there's no one clear answer to right, that. Right, I know, right. But ultimately, is it, is it, does it feel good? Is it right for the music? Is it serving right. the music? And that's kind of how I've been looking at drumming for the past seven years, especially since I've been here. Mm. You know, because in Blue Man, the drummers are very much out front. There was a joke that people called it band man group because <laughs> the band was so ferocious. And, you know, there's three Blue Men on stage. Right. And so they're dwarfed by this large band, this tribal drum army. Yeah. Four drummers, three string players. And when we're playing with the Blue Men, it's seven drummers mm. playing, playing simultaneously. And, um, so you sort of get used to being a leader in that way, you know, even though yeah. it is about the Blue Man character, ultimately, where they're supporting the Blue Man. Mm. Um, since I've been out here, I really look at drumming. I heard Abe Laboreal say it. And mm-hmm. I saw this interview where he's playing and talking about his life as a musician. He's like, I see my job as a service job. 
I'm here to serve. And that's literally what it is, especially, right. you know, in a blue collar sense, like sure. a lot of the gigs I do out here, it's just like, you know, I still play smaller gigs. And yeah. if I really like the artist or the music or it feels good, it's like, yeah, sure. You're playing a bar gig. It's like, I got my tools. I'm showing up to serve the music, serve the song, serve the artist. Yeah. And it's not some pretentious thing. It's no, like, no. yes, I'm playing and I'm involved in it and right. I'm making a statement as well. But uh, I think that helped me grow as a player and yeah. serving the audience. Right. You know, it's like, how are they digging it? How right. are they feeling about it? What's the vibe like in there, in the yeah. room? For me, it's mostly serving the singer and the band leader. You know, if they're right. good musicians and they're giving you the nod, I go, okay, I'm doing something right. Right. It's not independent of my idea of what feels good right. and how it should sound, but it's um, it's always in tandem with what they, you know, people yeah. get nervous or, yeah. hey, man, sit back a little bit. Or, or like, it felt fast. And when I know, like, oh, no, you're just, you know, you're right. rushing or you're dragging because you're amped up or whatever. Or, right. Um, still calibrate it in a way that feels good to them. And sure. that's the most satisfying thing for me, even among peers and friends like yourself. Right. If you're saying, hey, man, that felt good. Or thanks for coming down on the verse there. I'm going, great. And I found that made me better over time. Right. It's like, don't make it about yourself so much. You're already right. there doing the thing. <laughs> so it is a little bit about you as right. far as you're one fourth of it or one sixth or whatever. Yeah. But um, that's what I relate. I try and relate to my students. Awesome. You know, the yeah. next level of awareness is if your CPU is 100% <laughs> occupied with executing the thing you're doing. Right then you're missing this whole other realm. Like it's got to be automatic enough and you have to have enough um, proficiency with the vocabulary you have and the chops you really have together that at least 50% of your CPU can be occupied with or invested in listening to what's happening <laughs> around you and how it fits in context right. with everybody else. Yeah. And again, that's something I didn't always do well. I learned yeah, over either. time, right? <laughs> right? Like, are you listening? It's like, of course I'm listening. My ears, it's like, no. I had people go, dude, yeah. why are you playing a fill there? <laughs> what does that, but how does that relate? Well, listen to the, the vocal phrasing. What if your, your rhythmic phrasing emulated that? Yeah. You're not listening, man. <laughs> I had some tough, some tough love experiences yeah. where it was like, like ouch. Yeah, I've had those too where it was some shift where, you know, I was so in listening to myself mostly like 90% listening to me and 10% listening. And then right. now that's like probably flipped. At this stage of right. life, but I, I can relate to that. Did you start with drums? Did you start on drums as a yes, kid? Yes, drums is my first instrument. <clears throat> was it a snare drum or was it a drum kit? It's kind of like a typical story. I was banging on stuff around the house, <laughs> pots and pans, <clears throat> you know, with wooden spoons. Mm -hmm. My mother took me to a music store. We were living in Houston, Texas at the time. Texas, and, wow. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> and she uh, wanted to get me a set of bongos and... The guy working there said, you know, does he have rhythm? If he's musically inclined, maybe you should get him some drum lessons. I took a few lessons and then we moved from Texas to Chicago. <laughs> but I was already off and running, you know. I learned mm -hmm. a basic beat <clears throat> and she got me a beginner kit. And um, 
So yeah, it was always just drums. I, you know, I sang a little bit. I was always right. singing, kind of performing around the house. And I came from that sort of family. My parents both played folk guitar and sang. Oh, cool. We played in, in a hippie mass at our <laughs> Catholic church. You know, I was playing tambourine. Uh-huh. And um, honestly, I never really had any interest in playing other instruments. I was right. really just into the drums <clears throat> and oh. singing. Yeah. Was there a lot of music then in your house yeah. growing up? I was raised on rock and roll, you know. <laughs> so uh, Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix and Sly and the Family Stone and, mm. you know, old school rock bands like Cream and Vanilla right. Fudge and Blind Faith. And my mother showed me the Woodstock documentary and said, that's the greatest guitar player in the world when Jimi Hendrix came on. <laughs> and uh, she took me to a lot of really good rock concerts. I saw Queen with oh, Freddie Mercury awesome. when wow. I was like nine at Madison Square Garden. I saw Van Halen with David Lee Roth. I saw wow. Foreigner, Rush, Billy Joel, Paul Simon. Damn. She, uh, yeah, got me tickets to Eric Clapton. <clears throat> wow, what a great mom. <laughs> yeah. She's the reason I play drums, basically. She got me started. Thankfully, she gave me a, a drum kit instead of, you know, Adderall right. or, or <laughs> Ritalin, I guess, you know? No offense to anyone. Who's, no, no, you know, no. Drugs are helpful for they a lot can of people. Be, yeah. Yeah. But uh, my thing was, you know, drums and athletics and skateboarding. Right. But I was super <laughs> hyperactive. Did you, where did you practice? In the house? In your in room? In the house, in the basement, or in the <laughs> attic. And <laughs> the mayor of our town, when we moved to New York, <laughs> I went to high school at uh, Mamaroneck High School. <clears throat> we lived in Larchmont in Westchester County at the time, which is like 45 minutes or an hour outside of Manhattan. And the mayor of the town came over and gave us a lecture on the, vo- the noise ordinances because everybody in the neighborhood heard it, you know. Thank you, privacy. Yeah. <laughs> most yeah. people were cool about most it. Most people were cool, thankfully. But my parents, my mother especially, was very, she would encourage it. She loved it, you know. She's like, sounds great, you know, keep going. My dad would come home from work and say, okay, son, cool it on the drums. Good son. Yes. That's the Art Kremlin. Right. Good son, how are you? Great. Sounds good. Listen, let's cool it on the drums, okay? <laughs> Just for the next few hours. Good. Dad's home. Deal of relaxation. Right. That's so funny. What were your first teachers like? Anyone? Any teachers that really stick out for you? Yeah, my very first teacher, the guy in Houston, his name was Mark Van Dyke. <clears throat> and um, he wrote a book on modern rock drumming. Oh, wow. And he was the first one. I had a practice pad. I did some basic rudiments. Once he showed me like a two and four rock beat, I was sold. (laughs) I was like, I can play. This is it. (laughs) I would go home and I would, you know, put uh, records on or listen to the radio and go through every station that had a beat like that and play along. (laughs) Um, That's awesome. And that was for a really short time. Then uh, I was really lucky to have good music programs in all the schools I went to. I went mm. to great public schools. At the time, it was very prevalent, and I know it's different now. Yeah, yeah. Which is why I love giving private instruction, because I think music instruction is still really important. Yeah, um, But I played, so in sixth grade, that's when we moved to New York State when I was 11, so I was going to Chatsworth School in Larchmont, New York in sixth grade, I <clears throat> I won the award for the longest drum roll because <laughs> I guess there was a thing, you know, drummers previously right. would do drum rolls for three minutes or whatever. It was kind of a silly thing, but Mr. Kenyak was our <laughs> band director, and he was 
wonderful right. guy and really inspiring musically. So I played in the orchestra and, you mm. know, played a little bit of jazz band. And then in um, middle school, seventh and eighth grade, <clears throat> um, another great music program. I was in a stage band. We did like mm -hmm. Johnny Carson thing, right. you know, like not highbrow jazz, but right. like some jazz-ish yeah. stuff, you know, and right. then uh, Steely Dan songs and things oh, like fun. that. We had um, <clears throat> an orchestra. And then when I went to Mamaroneck High School, great music program there. I was in the marching band in high school. I was in the jazz band, the orchestra for a brief period, concert band, and my musical uh, director and teacher, Carl Stroman was a huge influence. Wow. And um, I started doing paying gigs when I was 13. Damn. And then when I was 16, I was playing with all these older people. <clears throat> and uh, like I would do junior, senior entertainment night, even when I was a freshman at 14 mm -hmm. or whatever. And then, um, yeah, I was playing in high school. I was already doing gigs at CBGB's in New York City. Wow. <laughs> what a trip. Yeah, it was kind of a trip. <laughs> I had no idea what I was in for, you know? Right. But um, that really gave me a lot of uh, a lot of competence. Looking back, I realized the marching band thing I did. We weren't like super heavy duty. I mean, mm -hmm. drum corps is its own unique discipline. Right, yeah. There's a lot involved in that. Um, <clears throat> but we had a visiting drum instructor, a guy named Cliff, who was uh, had previously been a student, a phenomenal drummer, killer chops. Mm. And so I got whatever rudimental stuff I have from him, which is not vast by any means, but like the fundamentals from yeah. him. And a lot of it was just uh, self-taught, you know? I would listen to music and try and emulate what I heard and play along on the drum set. And uh, so I didn't take a lot of formal lessons. Yeah. Later on, I did, um, in high school, I did have one drum instructor, um, a guy who was teaching out of a music store, and I kind of, you know, outgrew that. Mm-hmm pretty quickly um, as far as what I could learn from him. And then uh, the Drummer's Collective. Right. What was that like? That was great. <clears throat> I mean, I didn't really practice a lot, but <laughs> I was basically, I was already working in a band that was touring and recording. You know? oh, so right. I went there to brush up my skills and, and uh, you know, kind of got my ass kicked. Um, Kim Plainfield hmm. passed recently. He was a uh, fantastic player. He used to sub for Steve Gaddy and play with the Pointer Sisters. And oh, wow. He was kind of a cooler cat. You had to audition <laughs> to be one of his students, you know? Mm -hmm. So I walk in the Drummers Collective, like, you know, I can play and I'm, I'm already in the touring band and, you know, I got some stuff together. And, and uh, he's like, all right, man, so yeah, let, let's see if you can play. I'm going to play a groove. You play the groove. We're going to trade fills. And we did that. He's like, okay, yeah, you can play. Cool. So let's get started. <clears throat> and he gave me a few exercises that I use to this day. Wow. You know, that the, the little bit I learned through him and from him, because I wasn't super dedicated as far as being a drumming student. Mm -hmm. I was really dedicated and committed as far as making it in the band that I was in and my love for drumming and playing. Right. But I was really, all my favorite players were self-taught. And all the, the heavy cats that I would, you know, um, socialize with or <clears throat> run into like Zach Alford, who's kind of a friend. He's more of an acquaintance of mine. He was a good friend of a guy I was in a band with. Zach Alford played for Bowie and Springsteen and Gwen Stefani and Kelly Clarkson. And uh, he knew Charlie Drayton, Steve Jordan. And those were like the real heavy cats, you know? <laughs> and, um, man, all the feedback I got from folks, 
you know, in that realm are sort of like, I wanted to go to Berkeley and get serious. Right. Being a musician, you know, which I think probably would have been a good idea. They're like, ah, don't do that, man. You'll come out sounding like everybody else, man. What is it you want out of going to Berkeley? I was like, I want to be a great drummer. They said, well, then get a good teacher. Right. You know, but most of my schooling, you know, so to speak, was watching great players mm. like Zach. Yeah. Like, oh, he's human and he's doing stuff. I get, well, wow, how does he sound so much better doing that? <laughs> and then like, whoa. His phrasing and the fact he has fusion of funk chops makes his rock playing so ferocious, you know? <laughs> and uh, mm. the ass kicking I got from Kim Plainfield was really cool. And I, I in a gentler way, you know, <laughs> I'd do it with uh, my students from time to time. Yeah. But I always wanted to, I felt like I could just watch it and pick it up because some things early on came easy for me. Right. And I realized with my students now, it's nature and it's nurture. Some of the people who are most naturally talented progress the least. Right. <laughs> Right? Yep, and vice versa. So true, yes. You have some people where it's like, woo, it's going to be work with, you know, and they work out and you go, wow, they're getting it. You right. Know? They're getting so better. Yeah. I always teach from a place of anybody can do it. How easy it comes to you is relative. Yeah. And what you want to do with it, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. But, um, you know, I had natural ability and drumming came naturally to me early on. And so with Kim playing, I would watch him do something. I'd be like, okay, show me this foot pattern. I'd be like, cool. And I would try and just copy him and just do it, you know? And I'd be like, man, you're just so much better than mine. He'd go, man. One day he put the six down. And he was like, how do you think I got so good, man? And he wasn't saying that from a place of arrogance. Right. But he re realized that I'm viewing him as, as great as he was. He said, I practice, man, a lot, <laughs> you know? He's like, you're like barely practicing compared to what I like. And you think you're going to pick it up that quickly? And I was like, oh, yeah, he's right. <laughs> He's right. And so yeah. I really practiced a few of the things that he taught me mm. and they really helped my playing and I used them all the time, all the time. Mm. So now like retroactively, I've sort of become a music nerd and I, uh, I, you know, I have had periods, especially in the past eight years and a blue man as well. I practiced a lot, mm -hmm. you know, really trying to get better and then realize, oh my God, there's so few things I'm actually good at. <laughs> I'm just able to apply those in a lot of different contexts. Right. And um, it taught me about quality. Like, do you really have control mm. over the facility you have? Right. Or do you sort of have it together? <laughs> like, are you really saying something with it, you right. know? And until I have that, I don't feel like I'm even, why even add more, why work on left foot clave, you know? And like, I'm still trying to master, you know, just the independence uh, with the hi-hat, you, know, you know, the four mm. limbs, the way I'm playing. Right. And, um, so it's almost been a reductionist process. Mm. It's just like to have some mastery with the vocabulary you do have. Right. Instead of adding more. It's great to have a lot of vocabulary. <laughs> right. And you want that, right? And sure. that's what I want. Mm -hmm. um, but drumming in particular, you know, it's like everything's comprised of singles and doubles. <laughs> you know, technically speaking with the hands and that applies to the feet. So I found some really basic methods that helped me a lot and realized mm. how much I needed to work. And so, so I did. So you still do maintenance practice or like yes. rudimentary kind of stuff? Yes. <laughs> the Murray Spivak model, which he was an LA teacher who taught Vinnie Caliuta and uh -huh. Chad Wackerman. And, you know, you had to wait months just to get a lesson with this guy. And uh, he'd say, let me see your hands. Play some singles. Play some doubles. Okay. Here's your homework, you know. Five minutes at a slow tempo, five minutes at a medium tempo, and five at a fast tempo. Singles in front of a mirror. <laughs> Make sure you're using good technique. You know, there's some some specific um, 
you know, rules or guidelines you try and adhere to yeah. in terms of how you hold the stick. And then without going too far, drumming yeah. is, is such right. a, like, more than any other instrument, it's such a nerd rabbit hole. Right. It's like you got your hand technique and your foot technique and the finger technique. And, right. Um, but uh, that's all it was for singles and doubles. So it's a half an hour a day. You know, I was like, well, that's simple enough. Well, guess what? <laughs> I quickly realized like, oh, yeah, my singles could be cleaner, could be more relaxed. I can play fast for a minute, but not for five minutes. So my fastest tempo is slower than I thought. You know, I did just that. And then, oh, I got better. Right. And applied to everything. And of course, I work on paradiddles and double paradiddles sure. and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went through the Buddy Rich Rudiment book, but I by no means am like a super schooled, studied, um, heavily practiced drummer. I played a lot in my life right and i have practiced a lot but i tell my students like you can get good fast if you practice smart <laughs> yeah, you that's know so true <clears throat> and so like the kim plainfield stuff the one foot exercise he gave me i did eventually get that down it was really challenging at first and i realized that solidified my foot chops as far as single notes really firmly hmm. and um then you you know the things you really have down are, are easy. Yeah. On any <laughs> instrument, any time, the things you sort of have together, it's like, well, you don't really have it totally together. Right. You know? <laughs> Mastery is when you watch people do it and it's totally effortless. effortless. All the vocabulary, Vinny Caliuta, Dave Desenzo, Terry Bozio, you know, right. uh, Virgil Zanotti. And you talk to those people. I was in the studio with Steve Smith. You know, and you realize they have their struggles too. <clears throat> right. And some of their greatest achievements were born out of limitations. Right. Yeah. You know, Steve talked to me. Opportunities, yeah. Yeah, Steve was talking to me about his, uh, you know, the inspiration to revamp his, his technique. And he was dealing with some physical issues, you mm. know. And uh, without mentioning names, I know some high-level, world-renowned players that got fired from gigs. And were like, what is it I'm not doing? I learned to do that thing really well and then either got it back. Well, it's mm. no mystery. Like Kenny Arnoff, for example, was fired from the John Cougar Mellon camp gig in the studio. <laughs> and he was already a clinician he already had an instructional video of him blazing fusion chops so this goes back to my idea of what's good right you know my version of the kenny arnoff story which is like he's in the studio he's laying down a beat the producer's like it ain't happening man you know <laughs> let's let's fire this guy kenny said can i stick around and watch that this is how i heard the story uh -huh. right but I believe it's accurate that he said, can I just stick around? He either spent the night in the studio or came back the next day. He watched the other drummer do it, and he realized what it was that he wasn't doing well. And he worked on it, and he got the gig back. <laughs> and then he became the two and four king. <laughs> now he's, he's known for laying down power rock beats, but that was not, he wasn't good enough to keep that gig initially. Wow. That's you know, so, amazing. Yeah, so my version of that is like watching, uh, you know, on on film or on video, like Charlie Drayton, Steve Jordan, and go, how can these guys do a, a beat I know I can play? Almost, you know, most drummers could, but sounds so much better doing it. <laughs> and then the story of Zach Alfred, you know, mm. with his own band Body Bag, which is like his own side project with monster musicians and Zach's a phenomenal, wherever you are, Zach, if you ever hear this, <laughs> I love you, man. And, you know, he was an influence. I paid close attention yeah. to the way he played and I heard a story from one of Zach's best friends, who's a guy named Bob Burke. He's a fantastic musician who lives in upstate New York now. Mm. He's a great writer, and his name is Chicken. You know, he's known <laughs> in the Woodstock, upstate New York scene. Uh, Chicken was telling a story that Zach, um, Charlie Drayton came to Zach's rehearsal, and uh, Zach was like, yeah, sit in, man, why don't you play a tune? And Drayton goes, sure. Now, Drayton is not like, 
It's not like he has more chops than Zach, but chops is a relative thing also, right? right? What are chops? It's sounding good doing what you're doing. Right. So Drayton sits down, just bangs out a beat, but he's so on, it feels so good. And and Zach just got bummed out. Zach was like, how is it you do so much less and you sound so much better than me? (laughs) And Drayton answered that and said, because I do it, man. You know, meaning... I'm not sort of doing this. Oh. I don't kind of have control. I'm not kind of deciding. I'm 100% deciding with complete mastery and control <laughs> that this is the part that works for the song and owning it and with impeccable feel and right. touch and the whole thing. And so yeah. I heard that story from Chicken. I was in a band with Chicken and he was really hard on me a lot of times, you know? Mm. And he would sit down on the drums because he was also a drummer and the same thing would happen. I'd be like, <laughs> God, this guy, he sounds better than me, man. <laughs> Like, and he wasn't well-practiced. Right. You know, he would describe himself as kind of a hack on the drums, although he was a great, he is a great musician, was a great drummer. He just hadn't played very much in the years when I was playing drums in his band. Mm. And uh, it messed with me. (laughs) But then I got inspired, you know? So now, and I I tell my students all the time, and I keep referencing that because it's like so fun to pass it on. Whereas like a lot of the work I get is probably 85%, maybe 90%. It's like pocket, groove, feel, playing appropriately for the song, having enough chops or the right amount of chops to execute things well, you know, and be creative. Yeah. I was not the pocket guy. (laughs) I was not, that's not what people were calling me for. I was solid and strong and a good rock drummer, but it was Bob Burke who opened me up to like, listen to Funkadelic, man. Listen, it ain't just about metronomic time. Right. It's about listening to these New Orleans cats. Make it greasy, make it funky, you know? And I tried and tried, but I didn't fully understand, but I started to hear it and see it and be around it. And then I was like, whoa. Then I started to embrace it and listen to, you know, expand my musical palette. Mm. Blue Man helped with that a lot too. I bet. Because the feel they wanted was like, make it swing a little bit. And I was like, oh, swing. Dick it, dick it. No, 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 (laughs) man. Like it's still, but let it just be more organic and round. You know, Betty, Betty Greb talks about that, like the groove, you can see it as like an egg-shaped circle where it has a lope to it. Right. <laughs> as opposed to just completely right. cyclical. Yeah. And so then I embraced that, and then that became the thing, that became one of my strengths. Like I always had good time, and I always had a good, you know, good sense of uh, structure and feel, mm. but I was not like laid back and groovy and greasy. I wasn't listening to or I wasn't into that kind of music. I was like super aggressive and hard and on. My sort mm. of Germanic sensibility was like, da, 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 boom, you know, right. that's still an asset. Super precise. And, you know, yeah, and yeah. I realized like you don't have to let go of your assets, but if yeah. that's your ace in the hole and you just focus on that, you might be missing the point. Yeah. So I worked on a focus on all my, my weaknesses and then they became strengths like playing dynamically. When I first came here after 10 years of Blue Man, it was like, whoa, you play way too loud. You know, it was like, this is nothing. Like in the Vegas show, we're right. throwing down. And um, so I had adjustment. to learn. Yeah, it was a big adjustment. I had to learn to play quiet with subtlety. You know what, um, what I want to ask you about that is how do you, how do you maintain the the snare, like for me, when I'm playing in a band and if it's too, if the snare, if the backbeat is too soft, sometimes it just feels like it can't groove. And I don't know if it's a volume, if it's really a volume thing or what it is, but I notice with a lot of drummers when the band leader will turn around and say, it's too loud, and then they soften it, that something happens to the backbeat. 
that for me it's just like oh (laughs) (laughs) it can feel neutered you know yeah it's like start playing quieter you uh it's the strength of the pocket for me is an internal thing Mm -hmm. it can be a physical thing you feel what you're physically doing as you're playing but it's precision and relaxation and your self EQing. <clears throat> so if you bring the snare down, then relatively, well, I don't want to get too technical. Yeah. All the listeners are <laughs> sure. like, just drummers might plug into this. But I was like, where, where did you go with that? Um, you have to be strong in where you land the beat, mm-hmm. even if you're playing light. So it still has certainty. Right. And um, if you come down in volume, because there's so many components of the drum set, make sure that your relative dynamics are balanced. Meaning if you're slamming the kick drum but the snare is really small and quiet, it feels weak. Right. If the snare's gonna come down, then bring the kick down too. <laughs> Don't crank the cymbal, you know, on an accent. <clears throat> um, yeah. The way I do that is I still hear it strong on my head. If it's even if I'm right. playing it a whisper, that's the engine inside. Right. And then I have to physically uh, play really delicate but the math is still that strong. Yeah. With my, with, on the wind instrument, so like I was just talking to a student about this. He was like, we were talking about intensity, intensity versus volume. And so I, he was struggling to play soft on the saxophone. And I was like, well, you know, think of it, think of it like you're, you've got a cocktail straw and you've got a fire hose. Right, and one has a lot of volume, and it can also have a lot of intensity, and the other one doesn't have a lot of volume, but it can still have a lot of intensity, right? So even though we're playing piano, the air, the stream of air is still there's an intensity to it. It's like the violinist when they draw their string across the, they buy their bow across the string, there's still tension there, there's still intensity, even if they're playing piano or or that's a, that's a forte, uh, forte. Yeah. so it's hard it's really it's one of the, i think it's one of the hardest things to do is keep that intensity there at the at those soft dynamics yeah that was a real challenge for me <clears throat> and yeah. it's something i developed by studying jazz musicians and playing rock when when i'm required to do that with a jazz touch you know yeah i think of it as like like uh making love but you don't want the neighbors <laughs> to hear you you know right. <laughs> It's like you're really, you know, you got to be into it. Right. Um, other than the recording yourself, are there any other tools that you've, other than obviously the metronome, I'm sure, but are, what tools do you consider essential for when you're practicing? Metronome, for sure. <laughs> Play into a click. <clears throat> you can create a gap click, you know, where it's in for a bar and out mm-hmm. for a bar. You You reduce some of the beats so eventually you know there's more space than there is click and see if you can still be in time with it right um i don't actually do that a ton i know it's a useful tool i've done that sometimes um listen to yourself recording is the biggest one really yeah. for me yeah i mean drumming is very physical so i have a lot of different physical things i focus on in terms of technique and um practicing things that <clears throat> you're going to use on a gig you know so i like to keep things simple I develop a method that gives me, it's functional practicing. That's something Kenny Arnoff talks about. He's mm-hmm. like, here's my practice regimen. 
that's going to keep my chops up for all the gigs I'm going to be doing. You know, if I'm right. going to learn new vocabulary, that's a different kind of practice. Sure. You know, um, which is is great, and I do that as well. That happens for me every time I get called to do a gig where something's a stretch for me. You know, or like the Zeppelin thing. It's just like, oh, wow, okay, to really do this well. <laughs> And I got to get comfortable. And then I, I geek out. I go down the rabbit hole and I go on YouTube and right. I find out, did Bonham start this fill with the left hand or with the right hand? Because it was very ambidextrous. Sure. You know, what was the pattern? Was it kick right, left? Or was it right, left, kick, whatever? Right. Um, but for me, practicing is, <clears throat> with, especially with drums, it's physical, mental, and, and I try and make it musical. Right. I always try and groove whatever it is that I'm doing. And that's where Steve Dad was so ins inspirational. Or like a horn player, like you're just working on your tone, you know. Right. <laughs> or, or uh, yeah. you know, Carlos Santana holding one note, you know. Um, I always try and make it sound good because most of the stuff I practice, I'm using on a gig. Right. And there's so many times. Practical. Yeah, when I realized, okay, I'm just hired to play Shaker on this track. Thought this was easy, but actually, it has its own feel <laughs> right. to it. How can I make this sound really good? You know? Right, cool. What are you? Um, what are you listening to right now? What's what's got your ear? Anything um, particular? I'm listening to a lot of mixes from Eighty Bell <laughs> and the record <laughs> we just recorded. Oh, okay, which is coming out soon. Awesome. Venus Exalted is the band. Awesome. Eighty Bell. A D E Y B E L L. When She's, is the that supposed to be released? It'll probably be out. We're going to release it a song at a time, but it'll probably be out uh, within a month or so. Mm -hmm. uh, musically, usually it's whatever gig I'm getting ready for. Sure. I just listen to a lot of Rolling Stones <laughs> right. for this house concert I just, just did with Jeff Pivar and Anger at their Stonehouse concerts. That was two days ago. Um, honestly, sometimes I don't listen to Don't listen. Stuff. Yeah. I like to go in the woods and have... Quiet. quiet. I know? totally relate. I do other things. Um, I would say the standards for me is, <clears throat> you know, Zeppelin, Bowie, mm -hmm. Tony Williams, you know, Miles. And um, I kind of go back to a lot of the same stuff. And then I check out newer artists yeah. and see what's inspiring. But it's large. What I hear and what's in my brain is largely based on all the stuff I'm playing. Right. What, um, where do you, where do you draw inspiration? Is it outside? I mean, I'm sure it's many. I won't try to color your answer. <laughs> sure. There are many resources. So I'm just curious where, where you get your inspiration from. Videos. <laughs> I watch a lot of, <clears throat> A lot of videos uh -huh. of other drummers, and um, and listening. You know, yeah. I still get inspired by the greats. Right. You know, I, I found something about you know it's just audio of Vinnie Caliuta doing a clinic <laughs> in the '90s. You know, and his his views on technique, and just I'll listen to that. I listen to drummer podcasts. I constantly check in with the greats, you know, mm -hmm. who I consider modern greats. Right. There's a lot of gospel drummers I'm really into. And um, and then just from life, things outside of music. Yeah. You know, I remember someone, I think it was an article that someone asked and Stuart Copeland, like, how could I be a more creative drummer? Because he's so creative, <laughs> what he did. He said, 
do other things outside of music. Be <laughs> right. a more, you know, creative person. Travel, right. you know. Yeah. I love cooking. I, I really, I'm really into food. I'm into clean eating, clean for me. But sure. I'm also really into cooking. I'm really into movement and health, and martial arts, and you know, I'm also a qigong instructor. I'm way into that. Those things have definitely enhanced my voice on the instrument. Nice. And I always tell people because I learned it. You play like you are. Yeah. You know, so what kind of person are you? Are you? That's right. how you're going to sound of the instrument. That's awesome. Um, I'm curious what podcasts you listen to. I listen to I, all kinds of stuff. I and mean, I have like, <laughs> you know, martial art podcast. I have like the jog podcast, like the nutrition podcast, the food mm. thing. I, I'm into, um, <clears throat> there's a drummer's podcast. There's a couple of those mm-hmm. that I check in with from time to time. Those are really inspirational. Uh, I watch the Joe Rogan podcast occasionally because I like his guests a lot. Yeah, he has cool guests. Learn a lot from the myriad of different disciplines <laughs> and, you know, the people that are on that show. And um, a lot of boring stuff. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Lately, it's been a lot of, like, health and nutrition, you yeah. know? Cool. Um, any upcoming gigs or events that you're super excited about? Other than, I got this recording that's re- going to be released. Yes. But aside from that, I have some gigs coming up with uh, Petty Thievery. I probably have to check my phone calendar. <laughs> um, Petty Thievery is a Tom Petty tribute band that I'm in with Brett Levick and Alice Maselli and nice. Gene Black and Nick Kirby and Mark Johnson. And uh, that's a great band if you're into that kind of music. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> we have a gig, it's a private thing this coming weekend in Pro Vault. And but we have some other public gigs. We play in Eugene and a band as well. Check out PettyThievery.com, PettyThieveryBand.com. I think is our website. I can find it and put in the show notes. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah. And um, Venus Exalted. You know, we're playing. There's a festival at the Wellsprings coming up that Lloyd Barty Productions is putting on, and we're going to be doing a full band thing there because Eighty works also as a soloist. And uh, we have two great singers, um, Jeffrey and Lowe, and a cellist, James Hoskins, who nice. comes in from Seattle when he can, and um, <clears throat> Bailey on guitar. So over time, it's been a work in progress. You know, mm-hmm. I started working with 80 a few years ago, and the band has been slowly developing and growing. Exciting. Yeah, I'm really excited about those. That's cool. What would you say to young... 25-year-old Matthew, if you could sit across from him, would you give him any advice? (laughs) (laughs) I would say, uh, relax. (laughs) It's coming. Do your practice and all is coming. That's a yoga quote. Oh, yeah. From the Sashtanga yoga book that I reference. And um, it's nature and nurture. Right. You can have some natural talent, but you've got to nurture it. (laughs) And if you don't, people that nurture their talent might supersede you. Right. You know? Um, and they don't give up. Because <clears throat> there's definitely been a few times in my musical career where I put drums. I never gave up. I'll always be a drummer. Sure. I never gave up on the idea of playing drums, but pursuing it professionally, yeah, there were a couple of times where I was like, Phew. Yeah. Three times in particular, I was like, I want to do something else, man. <laughs> I'm burned out on this, you know? And it always, it's like the mafia. Like every time I they, think I'm out, it pull pulls me back. you back in. Something would, would pop up. Actually, the Blue Man gig, that happened at a time where I was like, 
you know, I don't know where my life's going. Yeah. I'm into managing this health food store. Well, that job ended, and then I was driving the truck, <laughs> kind of recalibrating my life and playing in a band. that I'd been in the band for six years. Like, we're close to making it. You're, like, on the verge of getting a major <laughs> record deal. It almost happened, but it didn't fully happen. Yeah. And then, um, you know, yeah, for me, as, as sort of pretentious as it might sound, <laughs> like studying meditation and studying martial arts and getting my mind and body and spirit together, that's when my life started to open up. Mm. And then I realized, and now more than ever, it's like that is of paramount importance to me mm. because drumming and music and career is all a byproduct of that. Yeah. And I've seen that with a lot of, a lot of players. Yeah. If you're just solely focused on shedding and being the best you can be at your instrument and then you're super hungry and driven and make it as a player that will get you really far and that might be enough but are you a healthy happy balanced person because as we know <laughs> there's a lot of messy people in this yeah, industry sometimes you know sure. or you know rest their souls a lot of my friends peers my same age aren't here anymore yeah you know yeah. so health is wealth people <laughs> cool awesome well i think that's a good stopping point um Thanks, Matthew. Right it's on, great man. to talk to you. Thank you. And uh, we'll have to talk again more about the spiritual stuff. <laughs> sure. <laughs> At another podcast, but um. yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Matthew. Cool. Thanks, bro. Hey there. Steve again. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Playful Musician. I'm really delighted you could be here. Would you like to get updates and behind-the-scenes information about The Playful Musician? Well, head on over to the website, theplayfulmusician.com. There, you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter with all the good stuff. It's quick, easy to subscribe. And if you like the show, well, I think you're going to like the newsletter as well. You'll also find show notes and links to everything and everyone talked about on the show at the website as well. You can even get a preview of upcoming episodes. Once again, check it out at theplayfulmusician.com. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and consider leaving a five-star rating. I'd also love it if you could leave a review. It really helps to grow the show and get the wide audience it deserves. Thanks so much. Have a great week, and I'll see you soon. Take care.